to John chapter 20. We're going to read what's, uh, be, being, what is the guiding passage for this time that we've been spending in the Word the past couple weeks. Um, you're going to have to bear with my voice this morning. It's, it, it feels like it's shaping up to be a difficult day in, in my throat. Um, so, um, John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. What I want to highlight again this morning as we, as we continue with this theme that believing involves battle um, and that we're called to fight for faith so that we can say my Lord and my God in every area of our life. Uh, I want to I want to I want you to be impressed with one the graciousness of God toward his disciple who doubts and then second the connection between belief and life that shows up in verses 30 and 31 of this chapter. So starting in verse 24, John writes, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side... I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. God bless you, my brother. Thank you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand And place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and many times we find ourselves in the place where we live most often inside of our minds, Lord, standing in a position very much like Thomas. And we're saying, unless you come through for us, unless you change our circumstances, unless you fix something or give me what I desire, I will not believe. And so, Father, we pray this morning as we continue to look into your word on this area of belief and battling for belief and fighting unbelief, we pray that we would see your great graciousness toward us. But yet at the same time, we would hear your words. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Father, may we not be those who are unbelieving, whether through our actions or our emotions. 
May we be those who can say in every area of our lives, my Lord and my God. Father, may we serve in this church. May we serve as you served in humility, urging our brothers and sisters on in the faith. And may we be humble enough that when a brother or sister, a sinner like us, sees unbelief in us and they point it out to us, Father, may we be humble enough to receive it as a gracious gift. The scripture says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. May we receive correction in humility. May we receive a blessing that will cause us to grow in faith as we respond appropriately to criticism and correction. Lord, I pray that as we look at these areas this morning, Lord, false guilt, despair, and regret, I pray that you would chip away our illusions. Lord, rob us of our wrong ideas. Plant good seed in us, Father, that we might grow into the image of your Son. We thank you for your grace toward us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Um, I've gotten to that age in my life where um, you don't expect huge life-altering gifts every time you have a birthday or, you know, it's Christmas or something. Um, You just, you expect life to be average in terms of gifts. Um, and And so my perception, I'm one of these people who used to shake my gifts and try to figure out what they were before Christmas. Not, like, on Christmas, I'd shake them, but I'd try to figure out what they were before I unwrapped them. You know, oh, there's definitely Legos. You know, there's that tinkling of the bricks that identifies um, the, the gifts. I, I try to identify gifts before I, I even open them, and uh, I'll confess many times I'll say, oh, is this going to be good? Am I going to be excited about this, or is this going to be blah? It's going to be boring. A friend came to stay for about two or three days, and um, he and his wife were at our house, and, and he left, and he left a little bag on the kitchen table. He left after church, um, and, and he'd, he'd left this when, when he left our house to, to come to church on Sunday morning. And, uh, and, and I came home, and I saw the bag, and Nancy had seen it first, and, and I thought, it's probably not food, because the bag is little, you know, and so that's kind of like, you know, food would be good, because we could eat it right now as we get ready for lunch. Um, maybe it's movie tickets. It's small enough to hold an iPod. Maybe that. Maybe that's what it is. Because you know you need three. Um, you know two is just not enough. I've got I've got one that I use and one that's kind of defunct. Um, but inside this inside this bag were these two plastic cards. And really, the determination of whether or not it's a good gift or a lame gift depends on what you believe about what those cards represent. They're made out of plastic. They have 16 numbers on them. And on the back, they have the CVV code and a little place to sign your name. Are they, are they, did he leave his credit cards? You know, like, am I, am I, do I swipe these and, and, and rack up money? Or no, that maybe they're gift cards. Okay. That's what they are. What you believe about them determines if you'll use them or not, right? You could just view them as lame pieces of plastic that can't enhance your life at all. You wouldn't hang them on the wall. Or you could say, wait a minute. These represent dollars that I can go and spend, right? But you've, you've got 
to believe something about the gift in order to use it, right? I could go and take my wife out to dinner and flick this thing and it's like magic. Or I could just leave them in a drawer like many other Americans and they'll just expire at some point, right? Depending on what you believe about the gift determines whether or not you'll use them or not. I believe the same is true of the gospel, of God's word, and of the promises of God. What we believe about them will determine whether we use them in our life, whether or not they make a difference in our life. Hebrews 3.12, I've brought this up each week as we've been moving through this series. I want to continue to deliver and drive this point home each time we consider the idea of belief. Non-belief, unbelief, disbelief is a dangerous thing in any person, but especially in the heart of a Christian. Hebrews 3.12, written to Christians who were on the edge, either on the edge going into the kingdom or on the edge heading out of the kingdom, Hebrews is one of those books that's full of scary warnings. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice there's a connection between unbelief and evil. It's evil because it leads you to fall away from the living God. So what's the remedy for this problem? The writer of the book of Hebrews says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so there's this call to inspect our hearts for unbelief, and then to look for unbelief in others, and as an act of love and service towards them, point that out and say, here's an area where I think that you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, you should repent of that and grow in the grace of God. And so we've been exploring some, some different areas. We looked at anxiety. We've looked last week at impatience this week. I want to I try to get through despair, regret, and, and false guilt as three big categories. Let me just make two more points, and then I'm going to move into those, those areas. The first one is there's a process. I, I, I would hate for you to walk away thinking... That what I'm saying is there's, there's a line, and you determine what side you're on by whether or not you ever struggle with feelings of despair. Or that you are not a Christian and you don't believe because at times you struggle with impatience towards God. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the general tendency of our life should be to battle these things and not to let them own us. To fight back against anxiety. To... to beat back against false guilt that dwells within us, that, that, that distracts us and tries to overpower our minds. It's, it's not a, if you sense the presence of this in your life, you're lost. I don't, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to think that. The tendency should be to fight. So there's a process here. The process is simple, but working it into daily life is very hard. The, we, we talked about this from Psalm 40. 2 and 43, what we're supposed to do is identify our unbelief. Ask yourself, in what way am I doubting God's goodness or diminishing God's holiness? In what way am I giving in to my sinfulness? And how does 
the work of Jesus on the cross teach me that this attitude in myself is wrong. That's identify the unbelief. The second thing to do is to repent of the unbelief. I think one of the most helpful things I've heard this year is an author named Jerry Bridges. He said, the gospel is just for sinners. The news that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins is just for sinners. And then he says this, all Christians are repentant sinners. The life of the Christian is to be one of continual repentance. As we spot unhelpful, sinful patterns in our lives, we're to say, oh, that's right, that's wrong. I thank God for the gospel, and I thank God that he's going to clear that off my account in Christ. It's clear. So I ought to repent of it every time I see it. The third thing to do is to believe in the promises of God. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The promises that God has made, he hangs his his very reputation, his character, hangs on whether or not he follows through on the promises that he makes to us. And the Bible says that they will all endure forever. The last step, after we identify, repent of unbelief, and then believe in the promises of God, then we're to act on those promises. It's not enough just to believe the truth. We need to act as if the truth is true. Psalm 119, verse 28 says, Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. I tell you, as I sang this morning, I was just once again reminded of the fact that I fall so far short of the standard that God sets out. I do believe that I consider all his precepts to be right. But there are so many times where I find a false way in myself and I, I, I say, there it is. And, and I don't hate it. I love it. And I have to work it to the point where I'm like, this, if I don't hate this, it will drag me away from God. I need to hate this attitude. I need to hate this tendency. I need to hate this feeling or this desire. And, and I need to regard it as wrong because the Bible says it is wrong. Psalm 119 verse 140 though talks about the experience of the one who fights this way. Your promise, the psalmist says, is well tried and your servant loves it. Think of these verses, these fighter verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Think of it as as something that a promise from God, a command from God. And what we're supposed to do is to use it. It's supposed to become so well-worn in our hearts and our minds that we say, yes, this is a, a promise, a word from God that serves me well all of my days. I love it. I love to come back to this verse. Let's talk about how belief should function in our life related to the areas of false guilt, despair, and regret. False guilt. What is false guilt? False guilt is this. Condemnation, which destroys a Christian's confidence and contentment over foolish things or sins done in the past. Condemnation, which destroys a Christian's 
confidence and contentment. It's condemnation over foolish things or sins done in the past. This usually involves despair or the persistent belief that God cannot or will not forgive. Or that the present hard times that you're going through are continued punishment for wrongdoing. Or the idea that you're too dirty for God. Or somehow you're in a second class category as a Christian. The Bible clearly lays out that Christians suffer ongoing accusation in their life and experience. I think this is best illustrated in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah is seeing all these visions, and an angel shows him, reading in Zechariah 3, starting in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Do you you see what's going on here? The devil is accusing Joshua of his sins. He's standing there before the altar. The devil's accusing Joshua. And the Lord is championing him, rebuking the devil. Look at verse 3. If you're in that passage, Zechariah chapter 3. Does Joshua deserve accusation? The answer is yes. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. You were to take this high priest Joshua. He's he's covered in excrement. All right, I'm just going to use an illustration, but let me just cut to the chase. Um, He's covered in... Filthy means he is covered with disgusting, nasty stuff. And the angel, verse 4, said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Peel off Joshua's filthy garments. And to him, to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, here Zechariah is speaking up, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Um, The high priest wore a headpiece and on it was a, a gold plate. And written on that in Hebrew were the words, holiness to the Lord, meaning completely and totally pure. What's the image that's going on here? This is an Old Testament visualization of the gospel. Every single one of us stand before God and the devil can righteously accuse us of the things that we have done wrong, the ways in which we've acted and we've fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, good things left undone, bad things which we have done, bad attitudes, and the devil stands there and hurls accusation at us. But this is God's stance toward us. He clothes us with purity and righteousness. He strips away what's wrong. And he clothes us with with what's right. And he places this headpiece on us with the phrase, holy unto the Lord on us. That is the gospel. Jesus dies for our sins and takes away our unrighteousness and credits righteousness to our account. Satan accuses the believer of wrong and lack of worth, but God is the one who commands and credits us as being clean before him, and he rebukes the devil. He takes away our iniquity. He purifies us. Now, here's the question. If God washes you, are you 
truly clean? Are you truly clean? There are many people who do not believe they are truly, really, honestly clean. Why is this an area of unbelief to be singled out and rebuked in the life of a a believer? Because the gospel says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all, all unrighteousness. And to say, I am in a second class because of some big sin I've committed, or God is still punishing me for some sin, or God could never forgive this sin, is to say that 1 John 1, 9 is a lie. Let me share some promises to encourage you as you, as you think about this, this battle. One, know that there is an accuser who accuses you and that he will be thrown down. Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The accusations will stop. Until then, we need to persevere in believing that we are continually being accused and that we should not allow guilt, false guilt, to overcome the power of the gospel in our mind. Does that make sense? You're going to feel continued persecution from the devil about things that you've done in the past. He's going to remind you about your sins, and you're going to be tempted to feel guilty. But you need to know that one day he'll be thrown down and that will go away. Now, let me tell you why I believe so strongly that false guilt is a sin. To continually go back and to rehearse ways in which I have messed up, I believe this is a great sin because I have never been tempted to agonize or to grieve over the fact that I don't trust the gospel like I should. The devil never accuses me of not trusting God the way I should. Does that make sense? How often have you felt this twinge or pang of guilt? Like, why do I feel so horrible about this? The gospel means I'm forgiven. The devil never accuses you like that. He does not want to get you to trust in the gospel. And so he accuses you with your past sins. He doesn't accuse you of the sin of failing to trust God for your forgiveness. If he did, we would repent of it. Does that make sense? Does that? Yeah? No. Yeah. Why? I I just want to, I want to, if you are one who has sinned greatly, And I stand before you as one who has sinned greatly. Let me just comfort you with this passage. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 say, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. God is passing before Moses and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. 
He is full of mercy. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is merciful and always forgives those who repent. Always, 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 always. Think of your worst sin. Think of something that you've done that maybe that you think, God, I'm just not sure he's forgiven me. If you acknowledge that it is sinful before him and you repent of it, he purifies it. He promises to wash it away. And God is not a liar. The Bible says it is impossible for him to lie. He will clear you. What are you relying on for your salvation? Are you relying on the standard of your behavior or on the smallness of some of your sins against him? Or are you relying on his gracious, forgiving, merciful character? That's where your heart should be centered, on the God who forgives, the God who is gracious. Don't pull back in unbelief. Mark 3, 28 through 29, I brought this up last week. Jesus says this, right before he gets to the unpardonable sin, he says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins will be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. We dwell as Christians on verse 29. What is this that God won't forgive? He won't forgive when we deny what the Holy Spirit is saying, and that is unbelief. But if we believe the truth that we are clean in the gospel, then any sin which we commit can be forgiven. First John 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the truth, we are forgiven. Let me bring out two passages. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Salvation without regret. There, the word regret means false guilt. A guilt that doesn't keep on giving. Godly grief. Godly grief over your sins produces repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. If your grief over your sins leads you to flee to the cross of Christ for forgiveness, then it's godly grief. But a grief that does not repent, but laments and cries and eats at the self, and says, oh, if only I'd not committed that sin in the past, then I would feel greater acceptance before God. That is not belief. That's unbelief. We don't trust 
in the unsinfulness of our sins. We trust in the, in the merciful, account-clearing grace of God. That is where we should focus our salvation. Let me tell you, if you are lost in this cycle of, if only I'd not done that, or, or this sin is too great, I don't believe God can forgive me, you are calling him a liar. Repent of that. Psalm 103, verse 9 says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. We're called to trust and to flee to the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He dies to clear us from our sins. We need to take refuge in truths about God's holiness and about his goodness, that he will clear us of our sin. Are you willing to believe something about the gospel when this sin of not believing in God's forgiveness rises up in you? Are you willing to to trust and to slide your card when, when the devil accuses you and says your sin is too great and you begin to believe that and you say, because I did this years ago, because I did this moments ago or days ago, God can never forgive me. Are you willing to just say, I believe the gospel and it's paid for, taken away? Let me just urge you to trust, to flee to the gospel. Are you willing to slide your card? Let me move over into the area of despair. Let me define what I mean by despair. This is the belief that we have reached a point of our life where we're at a dead end with no way out. This is not quite false guilt. It's just my situation. There is no way out. This is that burned out sense that we cannot carry on, that we, that we just, we're too tired. We don't have the strength within us. Despair is often connected with thoughts of abandoning the faith, of going and finding something else that might work. Perhaps connected with suicide or with an escapist use of alcohol and drugs in your own life. Rather than soldiering on and trusting God, the heart bound up in despair is tempted to sit down and give up. And this just... This is not a, a total pattern in someone's life. It can be an attitude that just comes on them. We've got this Old Testament story of how Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. He gathered all the prophets of Baal to the mountain, and then he set up an altar to make a sacrifice on, and they poured water on the wood for the fire, and they poured water on the sacrifice, and the, the prophets of Baal um, were, were cutting themselves over by their sacrifice. And no fire all day. They were, saying, they were saying, Baal is going to send down fire and prove that he's God. And Elijah said, douse my sacrifice. And then he said that he, he called upon the name of the Lord and fire came down and burned up the sacrifice. And then he told all the people of Israel, these are false prophets, kill them. He won a great victory over the worship of false gods. And you know what he did next? He went and he sat under a tree. He was depleted and he said, God, I give up. Let me die. After a great victory, after a great victory in his life, he slipped into despair. He just gave up. It may come upon you suddenly, or you may 
allow your circumstances. And looking at the people around you, you may say, because I don't share their circumstances, because I'm not married to a husband like she's got, or because my children don't behave like that person's children, or because I didn't go to a good school, or because I didn't do this, or I didn't do that, or I'm sick, or, or this or that. We just give up, and we're like the man laying by the pool. Jesus shows up and says, do you want to be well? And what does the man say to Jesus? He says, I have no one to help me get into the pool. Jesus is asking him if he wants to be made well, and he's making excuses for himself. He's lost in despair. Let me share with you some promises to battle with. Psalm 16:11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The promise is not the promise of future pleasure. I think that in this, temp- in, this, in this moment, it may be an escapist tendency that says, well, in the future there'll be pleasure. But the promise that God will make known to us the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. As we pursue God, as we fight back against the circumstances in our life, we will experience joy. Quite honestly, if you're going through tremendous amounts of struggle in your life, you might just need to unplug and rest. Jesus said to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. If you find yourself beat up by your circumstances and in despair on a regular basis, let me challenge you to nourish and energize yourself on God's word daily. Eat from God's word like you eat at your breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. I never miss a meal. Never. There are times when I miss the word. And that should not be. Come away and rest. Trust that if you focus on him and if you look to him then he will restore your soul Psalm 23 verses 2 through 3 say this he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake God has promised to do these things but we need to look to him in trust Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Jesus has come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, weighed down with cares. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you feel the promise there? You will find rest for your souls. Trust in the fact that God's burden is light and that he does designed to do good in our lives and that the gospel is the greatest good he could ever do to us in clearing us of our sins and that if we're struggling with sickness or with circumstances and that's causing us to despair we ought to trust that if God gave us his own son that he will be generous with us in all other areas as well my yoke is easy and my burden is light when we find ourselves despairing. We shouldn't run away. We should run to our God. We should pursue him and pursue restoration and rest 
and joy rather than focusing on the obstacles, the stress, or the problems in our life. Hebrews 13.5, this is going to come up when we talk about covetousness again, but let me just, let me just bring this promise home to you. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money. How much of our despair might be connected to the fact that we don't think we have the resources that we need to live our life? Keep your life free from the love of money. This isn't the, 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 pro, the, the nourishing promise yet. Be content with what you have. Now listen, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. How many times as I see somebody pulling away from me or I'm, I'm wounded by someone's words or I think this situation is just too great for me. I cannot handle it. Those words are there and if I just write them on my heart and remember them and speak them to myself when I'm in despair, I will never leave you or forsake you. I would shift my mind from focusing on my problems to focusing on his goodness and believing that he will move. This isn't cognitive behavioral therapy. This isn't positive self-talk. It's trusting that God will do the things that he promises to do. This isn't positive thinking. It's believing that God is going to come through on the promises that he's made for us. If you are struggling with despair, trust in the promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. But believe also that there are subtle traps which you can succumb to in despair, which the devil is designed to rob you of your joy in God. And you need to guard yourself against the unbelieving heart. Okay? John 5 Verses 1 through 17 is the story of the man laying by the pool. The sick man answered Jesus and he said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I'm going down another steps down before me. Right? Jesus then heals him and then finds him afterward, after he's been healed, and says to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Let me point out the two traps of despair here. One is self-pity. Okay? That is a tremendous trap when you are struggling with negative circumstances that you will think, poor me, and allow that to drag you away from confidence in God. Rather than cry out to God or respond to mercy being offered from Jesus, what this guy did was he chose the route of focusing on his unfortunate condition and his unfortunate circumstances instead of focusing on the freedom and the deliverance which a great and mighty and good and loving God was freely offering him. There's a danger of self-pity. Sometimes the most beneficial thing that can happen when we are struggling is to say to a very good friend, am I being overly sensitive and overly focused on myself? Husbands, cultivate your wife to say yes and don't get angry at her when she does. Wives, if you struggle like this, Give your husband the freedom to speak into your life so that he can guide you out of the pit of self-pity. God is good. He was standing there waiting to give goodness to this man and he could not see it. He could only see his circumstances. That's one trap of despair. The second trap is that of a false 
self-image. And this feeds self-pity. This man did not recognize his most serious problem. His most serious problem that he struggled with was his own sin, not his illness. I want to say this very carefully because I don't want you to think that I'm being ungracious. And, and I hope that you will not share this unsympathetically, quickly, casually, but share it with great care and with great seriousness. The victim of the worst crime in the world. The person who has suffered the most tremendous loss. The sickest, and I mean sick in the sense of ill, the, the most ill person that you knew, know is still a sinner in need of a Savior. Does that make sense? The person who suffered tremendous loss, we live in a society that gives a free pass to anyone who's a victim, right? They can say whatever they want, do whatever they want, because they've been victimized or hurt by their circumstances. The, the greatest enemy in our culture, or the, 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 the most intolerant insult, is to speak against what somebody else feels or believes against their, about their own circumstances. But the truth is, the victim of the worst crime... The person who suffered the greatest loss or the person who's struggling with the, the greatest illness is still a sinner in need of a Savior. And if this isn't in our mind, again, share that sympathetically in relationships that you've built. Don't just visit someone for the first time in the hospital and say, you're a great sinner in need of a Savior. You know, you will injure the cause of Christ if you do that. Please don't do that. But if we allow our self-image to be central, this false image of ourselves, our self-image can become a carnival mirror and distort who we really are. Jesus shows up to this man and says, stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. So often we stop and sit down in despair because we feel like we don't deserve negative circumstances. The scriptures describe that we deserve to be eternally separated from God for our sins and to be conscious in torment forever. We don't deserve anything good. We don't deserve a car that breaks down all the time. We don't deserve a bank account with very little money in it. We don't deserve spouses and freedom and jobs. We don't deserve any of these things. God graciously sets up the circumstances of our lives so we can enjoy them. But we are always doing better than we deserve. Let's just be so careful that we don't fall into this wrong image of ourselves and somehow allow ourselves to be fashioned into these perfect beings. We're not. We need a Savior. Again, share that with sensitivity and compassion. The, the opposite side of the coin for this man at the pool is the man born blind who lived his entire life waiting for this moment when Jesus would come along and heal him. The, his disciples say to the man born blind, or they're, they're talking about him, he's, he's sitting there begging, and the disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man who sinned? Or was it his parents who sinned that he was born blind? And this is what Jesus says. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God 
might be displayed in him. This is so important to to focus on when we are struggling with despair, with self-pity, with a false self-image. We should not let despair own us, and we shouldn't allow it to overtake God's purpose in our lives. God allowed this man to be blind from birth. He lived his whole life blind that Jesus might show up and heal him. And once the man was healed, Jesus didn't apologize. He didn't say sorry for all those years that you waited. He just healed him and explained the truth about himself. And isn't that all we really need? This man's testimony is not going to be, can you believe that God allowed me? He did not testify this way. This is not his reaction when Jesus comes into his life and heals him. His reaction is not, I spent all this time waiting for this guy to show up. And then when he healed me, he said that God made me blind so that I'd sit here all these years so that he could heal me. The nerve of God. This man's reaction was, praise God, I can see. I've been healed. I've been made right. And he chose not despair over his circumstances, but joy at having been delivered, at, at having a better life than he deserved. We don't deserve good things in our lives. We don't. And every good thing that we enjoy, James chapter 1 says that we should view it as a perfect gift coming down from our Father, who is always good. He doesn't do anything wrong ever. It's our perception of these things in our lives that is wrong. God loves us with a great love. The path out of despair is to trust in his goodness and to believe in promises like Romans 8.28 that says that there is a purpose in our suffering. That there is a reason why we struggle. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians. This is what I'm going to close up on. We're not going to get to regret. We'll talk about it another time. Um, I'm just going to close out on this. Um, 2 Corinthians. No, that's not it. Where is it? It's around here somewhere. on the very last page. Yes, there it is. So he's on the last page you look at. 2 Corinthians 1.9 says this, Paul was in despair in Asia. He was experiencing physical illness and stress on his ministry to preach the gospel to the Corinthians. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul says earlier in that chapter that he despaired of life itself, which is a Bible way of saying he wanted to die. He was so overwhelmed. Why did this happen to him? It happened for the best of reasons. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 1.9. He said, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In all of these areas, why does God expose the sin of false guilt? Why does he expose that to despair is a sin and he challenges us in, 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 our, in our fighter verse, Philippians 4, 4, to rejoice in the Lord always in all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
again, as if, we, if we were to, to, to pass over it the first time, he says, again, I will say, rejoice. And so he's, he's telling us, you should rejoice at all times in the goodness of God. Our circumstances don't determine our standing before God. Right? The, the smallness of our sins doesn't determine our right standing before God. What determines our standing before God is a saving, gracious, loving Father who sends His Son to take all of our sins upon Himself, that we can have a right relationship with Him. How does that save us from despair? Whatever circumstance you're suffering from, God is allowing you to live there so that you would throw away your trust in circumstances and tie your trust to Him. He's the treasure, not cars that run well, not well-behaved children, although well-behaved children are a blessing from the Lord. They are. The circumstances of your life are a blessing, but they are not the only sign of blessing. If your circumstances are bad, God is still good. and He's calling you to trust in him and not in your circumstances. Your circumstances can be good, but God is what's best. He is ultimately what we need for each and every circumstance in our life. And bad circumstances call us away from despair and to trust and joy in God. He's all we're going to have in eternity. If you envision eternity, envision eternity without anybody you love, envision it without a mansion, envision eternity without streets paved with gold, without a mansion to live in, without feasts and banquets. Imagine that everything that we commonly think of in heaven was gone and then imagine you're the only person there and you would spend all eternity praising God. I confess part of me thinks that sounds boring and that's because we don't believe that God is the gospel. That his goodness towards us is all that we need. That his goodness toward us in Christ is all that we need. We've become so comfortable in our culture. Tiny little things change and we despair. We've got to repent of that and trust in his goodness toward us. I'm just going to close right there. Let me just lay those two challenges out to you this morning. I was telling the Sunday school class, I do not measure up to this. I do not want you to think I'm standing up here lecturing you. These are areas which I I, I find incredible deficiencies in myself, but I'm not kind or serving you well if I just ignore them because I don't measure up. I'm calling myself to this standard as well. If you're here this morning and you're struggling you find yourself struggling with a sin that you've committed in the past and you are saying, God cannot forgive me. God would not forgive me. God's punishing me. Let me just urge you, lay that before him this morning. Just envision yourself in your mind taking that sin and laying it on the cross. The Bible says that the the bill of condemnation written against us was nailed to the cross. And if you are despairing over your circumstances... Let me just urge you to repent of that, to lay that at the foot of the cross. 
and to trust that God is all you really need. John wrote his gospel that we might have life by believing in Jesus. Let me just encourage you to believe in the goodness of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf this morning and not in anything else. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I feel so inadequate for what I, I presented this morning, Lord. I pray. I pray that my brothers and sisters were served well here this morning. Father, I pray that you would not allow an unbelieving evil heart to take up residence in any of us. Father, I pray that as long as it's called today, that we'd have brothers and sisters around rebuking those sins in us, Lord, in love, calling us to a higher standard. Father, I pray that we would not allow false guilt to dominate us, but that we would truly understand that we are clean in Christ. And like Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who's in despair. For anyone who feels like they cannot go on. For anyone who feels that they are overwhelmed by their their circumstances and that there is just not energy for them. I pray that you would help them to rise up, like you say in Isaiah, on wings like eagles. And that they may run and not grow weary. And if they don't have the strength to run, that they may walk in your strength and not grow faint. Father, I pray that you would lift them up. Father, lift their heads, that they might see you and not despair, that they might see your goodness, that they might see the greatness of your love toward them, and that they might rejoice in that. And know that you are the God who raises the dead, and there is nothing that can separate them from you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here in this room this morning who does not know you, who is listening to what's being said here this morning and saying, I only know that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Father, I pray that they would put their confidence in the work that you did on the cross in your son. You laid all of our sins upon him. And you crushed your son that our sins might be forgiven. You raised him up again from the dead that we might be justified. And if we put our trust and faith there, we are truly your children whom you love and accept. Father, I pray if there's anyone here in this room who knows that there's a sinner and needs you, I pray that they would trust in the cross of Christ. And not in their repentance, and not in their goodness, and not in money given in the offering plate, and not in church attendance, and not in Bible reading, and not in anything of themselves, but they would would trust in you and your word each and every day. Father, I thank you for the grace of your word. I thank you that you are gracious and merciful to us at all times. You always forgive. Forgive our unbelief. Help us to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.